Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Changes with me, Annie McManus. This is a podcast where we explore change and all the stuff that comes with it. My guest today on Changes is a pretty amazing woman. Her name is Tammy Jo Schultz, or should I say Captain Tammy Jo Schultz. And she has affected, just by her very persistence and existence, huge change in the American aviation industry. She is one of the first female pilots in the US Navy. And she later became an American hero when she safely landed Southwest Airlines Flight 1380 after one of the engines blew up and a window exploded. So not only has she broken a lot of boundaries and made a lot of change in terms of perception of female pilots in the aviation industry, but she's also changed the course of many people's lives. 148 lives were saved that day on the plane. One passenger sadly died. Tammy Jo went from humble beginnings growing up on a ranch dealing with anxiety as a child and learning to fight off bullies for her sister. She then went through to break through gender barriers, stand firm against bullying and ultimately prove the countless people that told her girls don't fly wrong. It was a pleasure to hear her story and to hear about her love of flying. I know you're going to love this. Welcome, Captain Tammy Jo Schultz. So Tammy Joe, you have such an extraordinary story of change and you are such a trailblazer for women in aviation, period, before you even get to the heroic plane landing that you did back in 2018, which we will get to. So I read some of your book in the lead up to this interview and you write really beautifully. I love how you wrote about your life and your childhood, which just sounds like the most lovely childhood with such a gorgeous family and gorgeous parents and so much playing outside and there was one bit that really struck me which is when you talked about how you started feeling anxious about things can you talk me through what you remember of that time sure playing outside catching frogs and fishing were you know our big big hobbies but in school um I just tended to get really wound up about tests and to the point where I started getting sick and I would get vertigo and just things would spin. And this was young. I mean, first grade, second grade, and my parents had me tested. The doctor at the end of the battery of tests just said, oh, you know what? She's just got this very spoiled disposition. She needs to be on tranquilizers, but it'll be the rest of her life because she just can't handle life. And my parents, thank goodness, uh, you know, they looked at the broader picture and they thought, well, we know she's not spoiled um, because even though I, I did have a wonderful childhood, there were no silver spoons in my childhood. There was a silver lining of love, but no silver spoons. And so they didn't have the money to invest in all kinds of uh, specialists or 
things like that. But they just looked at the common sense of it and said, you know, the doctor may mean well, but we know she's not spoiled. So his diagnosis that she's a spoiled child and she just can't handle life, he was wrong in one count, so he may be wrong in the other. And we're just going to work on how do you handle life? And again, just kind of homegrown common sense and wisdom. If I started getting anxious about something, they would say, Tammy Jo, I think we need help in the barn today. So I'm sorry, you're going to have to change out of your school clothes and get some jeans on and get down with me in the barn and give me a hand. Or go plow, you know, the the lower 80 or whatever the task was. And it would get my mind off of myself. Mm -hmm. And physical activity and being outside, I think, are all cathargic. Mm -hmm. So that just helped my perspective in a long range too. And they did this all the way through high school. And I would realize, you know, this is what I need to do if things start getting frustrating. I know today people work out, you know, to help relieve stress. And that's really my parents' early recipe. And they also, by doing that, they kept school in perspective. I know I have friends that are teachers, and I've told them, you know, I don't want to make school sound like it's not important, but school, work, there are just things that are external in life that don't define us. And they were really good about helping me realize who you are is different than what you do. Yeah. And there's another moment in the book when you talk about learning about bullying and and overcoming that um, on behalf of your sister, Sandra. Could you talk me through that? How old were you when this incident happened? Well, it kind of happened her whole life. So I would be in third grade, I think, second second or third grade when she started school. And for a little girl that limps and is kind of cross-eyed uh, until she had her eye surgery, you know, it, it kind of draws out the kids that would decide to flex their muscles on somebody that they knew couldn't flex their muscles back. And Sandra had just kind of drawn the attention of this one kid that he just couldn't quit. And we had just had a talk about it, I think the night before at the dinner table, and how bullies are never bullies to just one person. So even if you don't stop them, you know, you go ahead and step in the path of the bully and you don't win. Well, you slowed down their momentum for the next person at least. And then Sandra was getting on the school bus that day and he he gave her a shove and she wound up underneath the bus and I happened to see that and of course help her out and there there does come a time when you do have to stand up and it just depends on I think the time and the place it's awfully nice if you can just stand up to the bully with words and and wit uh, humor is always a great diffuser if it if it can work but we had tried everything, and so that day, I I have to say, whenever I got on the bus and got Sandra settled, he was back bragging about what he had done and just laughing at her because, you know, she was dirty and had tear-streaked face and stuff. And I I went back and clocked him upside the head and just told him, don't do it again. And how did, how did he take that? I think it shocked them all. And so <laughs> there was silence on the bus. The bus driver didn't say anything, and we all went home. And no parents called parents. It was, it was done. That was it. Mm-hmm. 
tell us when in your life you decided that you wanted to be a pilot. It would be junior high. That's when I noticed the jets overhead more often. And also that was when I was old enough to start gathering books and reading about it. So getting to read about something, we didn't have a telephone or a television and it was before the days of computers and cell phones. So I would check out books. And so I felt like I got to see aviation from behind a pilot's eyes. So that was really my first my first real dig into aviation. Can you remember what you did in terms of telling your family that it was a real thing that you wanted to do, a real aspiration? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it wasn't it it wasn't met with any beautiful symphony behind me, you know, like, right. oh, she's landed on it. <laughs> the first time I told my mom about it, she just shook her head and said, Terry, those people are smart. <laughs> and I I went away from there thinking, you can take that a number of ways and one of them isn't real nice. But I think part of it was what I'm finding out now as I'm doing some research for different reasons that If people don't know about something, they make all kinds of assumptions up about it that may or may not be correct. And she had never even met a pilot before. So, you know, she's just thinking, I don't know what kind of people become pilots. And then later when I I reiterated, well, you know, I make pretty good grades. Maybe, Maybe I could do it. And she said, you have cavities. You have had cavities. And I'm really thinking, okay, now she's left me. I I don't know where she's coming from. And she had never been in an airplane before. Wow. So again, this was she'd heard this this thing that your cavities would explode at altitude. <laughs> and I was telling someone that very worldly person and they're like, "I believe it. Mine did." So, I don't know if it's ever true or, you know, if you get a pocket of pressure underneath a cavity, but yes, it was not something that everybody went, "Look, Tammy Joe's found what she's going to do in life. This is great." It felt like reading your story a very difficult way in once the Navy finally accepted you. How <laughs> difficult was it and how many attempts did you make before you were finally accepted? Well, I I started seriously looking into it senior year career day and the colonel in charge of career day told me, this is career day, not hobby day. You need to go find something girls can do. And that would be previews of coming attractions because I I got the same story from my guidance counselor. So I studied something different in college. And then I came back. At the end of college, I met my second pilot. And it was a woman getting her wings in the Air Force. So I thought, oh, okay, girls do fly. And I went out, went to the Air Force recruiter and he said, no, we don't, we don't need women. So I waited for a different recruiter to come behind the desk and I went in again. And he said, no, we don't, we don't accept applications from women. We don't need women pilots. And I went home and I cut out the, the advertisement that was in the local newspaper saying, if you have your four-year degree and you want to fly, we want you. And I went in and they I guess they'd talked about me like, this girl doesn't give up. And they said, no, if you have a brother, send him in. But we're not accepting applications from women. And the Army said, nah, you're not a fit for us. So finally the Navy. But I, and- I, I can no, can no, like, what, I, <laughs> sorry, I'm speechless here, Tammy. Well, <laughs> surely, like, that's, that's illegal. Like, there's, there, there's no, 
grounds for what they're saying. Well, and the thing is, though, when you don't have that information, then whoever's wearing the uniform makes the rules. And so just being armed with information, like we have Google at our fingertips. And yeah, today that sounds ridiculous. Uh, I went to the Navy. They allowed me to take the test. But then when I got my test scores back, the lieutenant said, no, I'm not going to, you can't fill out an application because you made a score good enough for a guy, but not good enough for a girl. Girls have to score higher to get in. So again, you know, if you don't know oh any better, God. and so I went, I went back to grad school actually after that and working, I worked, I don't know, three or four different jobs and, but I finally so found. So how old are you now? Sorry, you're what? So like, I graduated, I, I was a year early in, in school and out. So now I'm 22, a year out of college. And then at 23, I found my third Navy recruiter allowed me, I mean, he was really great. He was as great as everybody else was awful. I mean, he flew a little Navy airplane down to uh, help me get paperwork done. He, amazing. Two years after college, seven recruiters, three branches of the military, and I finally got into Aviation Officer Candidate School, which is the Navy boot camp for pilots. Right. How was your experience there? (laughs) You know, the good thing is, I felt like we were treated really just as wonderfully awful as everybody else was treated. Okay, yeah. I would say it was boot camp. And having competed in college athletics and had some uh, a rather rough volleyball coach, um, I, being yelled at and stuff just wasn't a big deal. And I'd always worked mm-hmm. out, and boot camp was getting your head shaved, doing push-ups in the mud, and... Getting your three months over. And then after that, you then assigned departments to go and work in. I mean, how does it work? Right. Uh, so when you leave there, if you get through, and there was a, there was a pretty big attrition rate. Wow. But if you graduate, you head to flight school. And so I went to Corpus Christi, and the Navy starts you out at 550 horsepower, and it's a turboprop. Wow. It's kind of like the equivalent of learning... Instead of a, using a sippy cup, just learning to drink water out of a fire hydrant. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's exciting. <laughs> and then you go either helicopters, airplanes, or jets. I, I had good enough grades and chose jets, and so I was fortunate to get to fly jets. Were you the only woman? Yes. I was the only woman in the first four squadrons that I checked into. So I was, yes, I was the only woman... It was interesting because it didn't seem to matter whenever I checked into a squadron where we had a good skipper and everybody just focused on flying, which was tough enough for everybody. You know, we were all drinking from a fire hose, it felt like. But if we had a bad skipper, then there was just, you know, this unrelated to the real mission, fiefdoms and landmines and... And there was a bit of mission creep. I did fall in with a great group of Marines. I had a good core group, even if I had some honorary instructors or COs. And how did your peers treat you? Yeah, it it really depended on leadership. I flew with a Marine instructor, and then my peers in that squadron were mostly Marines. So 
as long as they were around, I really had very little trouble. But like the Opso, who's number three in the squadron, and he came in and told me, Bonnell, you're going to have to uh, transition to the to the prop pipeline, which the jets were the what everybody wanted to fly. Like I said, you had to ha- have a certain grade point average, and they only had so many slots a week to go out to it. So getting there was uh, hard to do, and I'd gotten there, and I'd finished T2s, number two in my class, by .001 or whatever. And, and so to be told in front of the whole squadron, students, instructors, by the number three in the squadron, you need to go check out because your torso harness doesn't fit. The torso harness is what uh, attaches you to the ejection mm. seat in the jet. My peers thought, you are out of here. I mean, Hang on. So, so the harness didn't fit. Did the harness really not fit? Or is, was he just using that as an excuse? Both. It, it did not fit properly. Because it won't fit you because you're not make, because they don't make them for women, right. right? They make them for men. Right. But honestly, I felt like Providence had looked out for me because only maybe a week prior the pair riggers who deal with all of our flight gear had come up to me and said, hey, if your torso harness doesn't work, you can go to China Lake and get a new one made, a custom one made. And I kind of thought, well, why would you tell me that? Either you would say, you need to go get one made. I'm putting in the paperwork for it or or not. I don't know why you would tell me if you need one. And they were kind of hush-hush about it. And I looked at him questioningly and they said, the guys who are really short or really tall have to go get custom ones. It's not just for women. And then a week later, here comes the operations officer with his announcement, your torso doesn't fit, so you're out of here. And I was armed with knowledge. Again, that whole thing of being armed with knowledge. And I said, oh, well, you know what, sir? I'll just go out to China Lake and get one made. That The pair said the guys that need custom fit do that. And he kind of just shook his head like, dang it, <laughs> and, and went on. How did you cope at the time when, when, when those guys were effectively bullying you in the workplace? I think everybody has adversity in their life. I mean, I saw it in my dad's and my brother's lives. And so trying not to be offended is really a big step towards not being a victim. And I had made up my mind when the colonel had said, you know, this is not hobby day. It's career day. You go find something girls can do. I thought I can be offended and a victim, or I can just, you know, listen and see if there's something I could do here. It seems like the doors were shut. And then I realized, no, they're not. So I went through seven recruiters because I just thought, you know, I, I think I have the raw skill set. And if I don't, I'm sure they'll let me know. <laughs> A saying in our in our family was, keep your feathers well oiled. We had ducks on the farm and, you know, they'd sit around and they'd be preening their little feathers, putting oil on them so that it turns water. We all have to do that in life, I think, no matter what you do. So you spent 10 years in the Navy, right? Yes. What made you want to leave? Well, there was some huge changes that came came about while I was in the Navy. The changes isn't what made me want to leave, but they determined kind of my timeline. So the Navy was well above above average. They were ahead of time in letting women fly combat aircraft in tactical roles. And that's what our squadron did. 
So whenever Congress started looking at lifting the combat exclusion policy for women aviators in the military, a lot of focus came on our squadron. And by the time the exclusion policy was lifted and then to be implemented, I would have been up for lieutenant commander. And so the Navy drew a line and my year group was on the other side of the line. So I was one year group too old to go into combat, into a combat fleet squadron. I just thought, you know, if I'm not going to go do that, then I've got other things to conquer in life. And so I headed out into civilian flying. So, sorry, I'm just trying to get my head around this. So the combat exclusion policy was a policy that lifted the exclusion of women fighting combat. Is that right? Right. And they did it in aviation first. So women, aviators. You were were the the example of women being able to do this, basically. Right. But you weren't able to do it. Right. My year group was the cutoff. How ironic is that? Like you helped them see that the rule could be made and then you weren't allowed to go and do your job. Well, again, you could be frustrated and and aggravated and resentful or you could go on and have a good life. Were you happy about this um, policy being lifted? I mean, it must have been, that's a big deal, right? I was. And the funny thing is, well, I didn't even think about it, to be honest with you. And then once I was there, I really didn't know how I felt about that. I mean, I wouldn't have minded doing it myself, but I thought, well, if we ever had a draft, I don't know if that would really work well. And I'm, I'm very pro-family, so I, I love for sure. people to have a family. And so I thought, I don't know how that would work. But the thing that changed my mind on yeah. that was going through the POW training and the survival training. And, of course, being the only Navy person at the Air Force POW camp. I'm, I was extremely popular to be unpopular. And then uh, a woman pilot, the only woman pilot there. And I saw how people acted under duress. And I realized combat is very much a state of mind. It has very little to do with your muscles. Now, you need to be physically fit, but there's a lot of people that are physically fit that are women I had some young ladies, one of which was from inner city, Chicago, 18 years old, just out of high school. And she was the toughest thing there. The guards Mm. could not break her. And then I had a a college graduate fighter pilot. He had a tough time. You know, if I were going into combat, the mental toughness she showed would be the one I'd want beside me. And I, I, I left there and I told my husband, I have, I really changed my mind on women in combat, because there's women that I would not want to go to combat with. Mm. And there's women that I would. And there's same thing in men. I don't think it means you're more or less of a person. It's just not what you're suited for. This takes us on to the, to the next big part of your story. A day when your husband was going to go to work and couldn't, and you stood in for him. (laughs) Yes. That day, I would have to say, it. you know, it just starts like any other day. So many big events can happen in a day, but it starts with a sunrise like any other day. I met my crew 
most of them for the first time that day. Darren, my first officer, and I had flown one day before together the previous day. Wow. Shanique Mallory, Catherine Sandoval, and Rachel Fernheimer were my flight attendants that day. So we we headed out. We were on our second leg of the day. I think we had three to finish out our day. But leaving New York and headed for Dallas and going through 32,000 feet, there was an explosion. And then we had a a pitch over in the nose. The aircraft skidded sideways, and we did a snap roll to the left. What is a snap roll? A snap roll is if you see a wing going high. Right. Okay. And then skid is sideways, Got and it. then pitching over just the nose going down. It was a pretty severe hit. We both thought that we'd been hit by another aircraft and got control of the aircraft back and we could see that the number one engine instruments were flashing and, and rolling backwards. But then suddenly we couldn't see or hear anything. We couldn't breathe. We couldn't focus our eyes on anything. There was smoke pulled into the cockpit. We couldn't communicate because of the roar going through the cockpit. And it's one of those things where I'm sure everyone had an adrenaline-filled moment at that time. And for me, it was kind of that decision tree that goes through your mind, whether you're a mom or you're a pilot. And that is just good news, bad news, and then figure it out. And I always take bad news first and realized, you know, it may be the day I meet my maker uh, because I wasn't sure we were going to keep all the big pieces on until we got to a runway. And I I really stepped back from that thought process with a, with a calm because I... I felt like I wouldn't meet a stranger, if that's the case, and then turned around to just look at the good news, which was we're still flying and, and continue flying. And your your cockpit at this point is, as you say, filled with smoke. There's this huge, loud roar, all coming from behind you, right? Mm-hmm. Did you know what was happening at this point? Did, did you figure out where the smoke was coming from within the plane? The The smoke... Since we didn't have any fire indications, we we assumed right. the smoke must have come through the air conditioning system from the exploded engine, and it dissipated after a little while. So we knew that we, we didn't have an active fire. I think I shut down the engine within the first 30 seconds just because I didn't want any fuel fed to that, that exploded engine Got in it. case there was spark. But really, it was treating the symptoms for for most of the way down because we couldn't see anything other than chunks torn out of our leading edge of the wing. And then we knew from not being able to breathe and from that roar that part of our cabin had been punctured. The reality of it was, and before I tell you that, I have to say something on behalf of my crew in the back because once we had control of the aircraft and we put our oxygen masks on and communicated with ATC and let them know we're we're in a descent, we're headed to Philly, single engine, and stuff like that. Then I, I made an, a, a PA uh, to the people in the back because I realized, I mean, this was pretty startling for Darren and I, so it had to be mind-numbing for the people in the back. And I just made a real quick PA. I think about it now, it probably wasn't comforting, but I did say, we're not going down, we're going into Philly just so they knew somebody was still in control of the aircraft and we had a destination. Yeah, yeah. And 
the flight attendants at that point, they unbuckled and headed down this really rough aisle. And when I say rough, I mean sprained back, bruised ribs, cuts, lacerations, bruises everywhere from just walking down the aisle to help people uh, get their oxygen mask on and get their oxygen mask on their baby, you know, whatever the case may be. And there were a number of cases that I feel like my flight attendants and then the passengers who also looked around to help unbuckled Tim McGinty, Andrew Needham, Peggy Phillips are three that unbuckled and got in an aisle to move towards this open window that had been damaged and blown out to help somebody. And I think they changed the ending for a number of people that day in in the back. Then Darren and I, what we couldn't see, and, and the flight attendants did get on the intercom later to tell us where the breach in the cabin was. We were already down to 8,000 feet by the time they told us. But it was comforting to know that it wasn't something that was continuing to tear open. Uh, Got it. Because as we came down... There was this unscripted combination of emergencies that just kept happening. Or, you know, we would discover a new one. Our hydraulic lines were cut. Our fuel lines were cut, you know, and the tearing of the aircraft continued all the way down. And the the big pieces of the cowling, which are the, the smooth covering of the engine, had peeled back something like a banana peel. And flailing in 500-mile-an-hour wind created you know, kind of a barn doors and a hurricane effect at the root of our wing where we really usually get quite a bit of lift. So it was it was a handful. We got down over the city anticipating using that good engine, but it wasn't wasn't to be. As we slowed down we had less airflow over our rudder, which gives us less rudder authority to keep our nose straight in the wind. And the drag on the left pulled us to the left. And then you add power on the right, and that pushes you to the left. So airplanes don't fly well sideways. So we had to pull off most of that power and use different flap settings and time our gear because we knew we were about 10,000 pounds over weight for landing. And then we, we had not only a single engine, but we were a big drag on that side with the damage. So we knew we had one shot at landing, and, and so the approach needed to be done properly to land on the runway. I listened back to the sound recording of of you going through that what you've just described talking to the to the people um in Philly and there's an overwhelming sense of calm. Yeah. And it it's really it's really astounding listening back. The air traffic control, yeah. you can hear the panic in his voice and he's like I'm sorry, can you re- can you repeat that? Did you say there's a hole in the aircraft and you're like mhm there's a hole in the aircraft, and you, but you're very calm. What was going through your head at the time? Do, do you remember feeling any certain way when this was all happening? You know, honestly, the pivot point for me was that first moment when, you know, I told you we pitched over, we skidded sideways, we did a snap roll, we got it back. There was such shuddering, we couldn't focus our eyes. And this all happened instantly, not in a second. That's a, ma- that's a measure of time. This all happened instantly. So, you know, that's like being in a snow globe that somebody's really giving, giving it to. And so, 
you know, I had that moment of, I'm not sure everything's going to stick on this aircraft. And that would mean it, this yeah. could be the day I meet my maker. And and realizing that I won't meet a stranger, that I meet with him every day, I really stepped away from that what if cliff mm. with a calm. And mm. I I feel like my training, my experience of of course, all those great habits that you build in in that amount of time and and good training, they certainly took effect. But the calm, I felt like I felt like that was a bit of a gift and not all of myself. And we would need that. Uh, we had to replan just about everything we planned. We replanned probably ten times on the way down. You know, when you're calm, you can be creative. You can be flexible. To be honest, Annie, it wasn't the first time something bad had happened in an airplane. Even in training in AOCS, I had gone down and gotten flipped over upside down in the Dilbert Dunker, and you're underwater, and you're supposed to get out. And they had accidentally jammed my coke fitting, my webbing, to the parachute rig in the coke fitting. And, I mean, it went through two different divers, no air. They ran out of air had to go back up and I'm still down there upside down trying to get out. And I don't know, just sometimes I think life experiences, even though they're not pleasant, they really can build up to make us uh, stronger and wiser in how we face new challenges. Mm. Panic not being something that was would be helpful, just decided not to. I can't help but think about when you were a little girl as well and the kind of very simple methods that your parents helped you learn about just doing, just doing things and, and having something to do is probably the best possible thing in that scenario, isn't it? I think that is probably a reason that I don't have terrible nightmares or anything. And and I know a lot of my crew and passengers have, have dealt with that. Yeah. But it wasn't a matter of personal strength. What I think it was is when you're in charge, you're pretty busy thinking about what you need to do. Like for the passengers in the back, you know, they, it's kind of like being on a school bus that's headed toward a cliff. And if you're in the back of the school bus, I'm sorry, that's just a scary place to be. But if you're the driver, you're thinking, am I going to, am I going to add power? Am I going to steer into the skid? Am I going to, you know, you're just thinking and planning. So afterwards, you you successfully landed the plane. And, you know, there was a huge media hysteria all over the world. And, you know, everyone wanted to talk to you and and, and all of that business. But one of the things that struck me was, was you getting off the plane and just going and meeting the passengers and, and, and kind of saying hello and checking up on them. When you saw them, did it hit home? You know, because obviously I can imagine when you're in the cockpit, you are just focusing on what's in front of you. Right. And obviously you're aware you have passengers. But when you saw them afterwards, how was that for you, basically? Yeah, it was very sobering. Um, Yeah. And I have to say, uh, one of the things that struck me first was instead of anxious and uh, people driven to get off so that they could get to where they need to go, which we all have places to go and, and a need to get there. Yeah. There was this calm and attentiveness. And when I say attentive, I don't just mean to me, the captain. They were attentive to each other, to total strangers. It was it was amazing just to see how people were helping each other so selflessly, mm-hmm. you know, 
total strangers getting down on their knees to tie another person's shoes. I think they felt the weight of and the value of human life that day. You know, we we were able to return 148 people to their life and their loved ones, but we were not able to do that for one, for Jennifer Reardon. And, you know, the survival of many never eclipses the loss of one. So I think just the soberness of what we'd all finished going through and that it does leave you changed. I I would have to say I had a a certain sense of gratitude because I'd already been told by the flight attendants that there were some guys helping them to get Jennifer back inside and that there was a woman, a nurse, uh, Peggy Phillips, that had gotten up to give her CPR. And there were other passengers that got up and helped. Uh, I, I can't go through all their names, but there was a number of passengers that did a number of, of heroic things. It's, it's one of the things I tell, tell the kids that I speak to. I, I tell them, you know, so many of the heroes that I saw that day yeah. had no title, no uniform, and no equipment. They were just people that took the time to see and then took the effort to act on behalf of somebody else. Sure. And I don't mm-hmm. think that day was the first day that they were heroes. I think they'd made it a habit to look around and see if they could help somebody. One of my biggest takeaways from that flight, going back to the flight attendants when they heard that we had a destination, they got up on their feet, not because anything had changed. It was still a rough ride for the next 20 minutes. But hope doesn't always change our circumstances, but it does change us and how we react. Would you change anything different about that day? Oh, yes. For one thing, (laughs) there would not be a loss of life. It burdens my heart. I can deal with a broken airplane. I'd I'd had, like I said, I'd had other things go wrong. And uh, once in the Navy, in particular, teaching out-of-control flight, when we had an aircraft we didn't realize had an imbalance in fuel, and instead of doing a spin, it went into a spiral, which we had no procedures for. We came pretty close to having to eject, and ejections are often messy if successful. So I don't get upset about mechanical things. They're machines. But there's never anything that you, you can find good about the loss of life. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Has anything about that day changed your perspective on how you live your life? I don't know that that day has changed my perspective but our oldest had gone through a pretty dark time in her life and Mm -hmm. i felt like i just don't know if life could get tougher than what it is right now and more painful but having gone through that and realizing i can't control what happens in my day but i can control how i start it and how i end it My feet were already on the ground, but it certainly has put some weight on my shoulders to give me even better traction. How did your family react to what you went through? Well, now here is the taste of my family. I waited until everyone was off. No one left on the airplane but me. And I texted my husband first, and then I knew he'd tell the kids, but I I texted my mom and dad, and then I texted my kids. And the answers came back exactly how I would have suspected. My husband says, is that, is that yours? Thinking, is this just something that happened yes. at Southwest? Or are you involved with that? And then my mom, oh, Tammy Joe, I'm so glad you're okay. My daughter, oh, mom, I'm so glad you're okay. And then our son, who had just gotten his private license, said, because I had said, landed single engine Philly. And my son answers it. <laughs> Well, there's a reason they give you two, two engines. You know, I'm thinking, aren't you salty? Little smarty pants. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes. That is, that is the flavor of Marshall. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So here's the other thing that's quite remarkable about what you went through that people will think that is that you didn't take long to get back on an airplane. No, three and a half weeks. And how was that first flying experience? Fabulous. Yeah. It was. You know, it's something that I've done for 35 years. In my perspective, if I were in a car accident, um, you know, of course you're upset about what happened. You, you can't help but hear the jarring of metal and whatever, those awful sounds that go with it. But you still go get in your car to go to work. And for me, getting in the airplane to go to work was just part of, part of my life. There was a a lot going on right after that. You know, you have all kinds of tests done, safety debriefs and different things. And I just really wanted kind of a slice of normal back yeah. in my yeah. life. Um, I mean, you were called a hero. You were called an angel. You went to the White House. I watched the video of Donald Trump, you know, and, and you and, the, and the, the flight attendants. And I mean, it must have been a really remarkable time. It was. I I have to say it was, people couldn't have been kinder. And I always say commercial aviation is a team sport. So I had a great crew. If there hadn't been a loss of life on our flight, I think it would have been quite a victory parade. But we just all, all of our hearts. But I, I try to keep it in perspective because truly any, us making the runway was not a given. Uh, when it came time to get the last 90 degree of turn done, 
we had just enough power in that we couldn't turn into it. And we were already slower, lower than what we wanted to be over the heart of Philadelphia. And the only way to get turned around was to pull that power off and get the nose around. I, I definitely try to be grateful also for the fact that we made a landing. I mean, what are the chances of that happening? I mean, there'll be so many people listening here who who, who right. would be scared of flying. You know, what are the chances of what happened to you on that day? Oh, it was such a fluke. And it was a, a molecular level flaw. Right. And since that happened, everybody that flies 737s has taken every single fan blade off. They have x-rayed it and if there's even the hint of an anomaly in the x-ray then they strip the coating off of it and re-examine it at a molecular level so you know if i felt like there was chances of it happening i wouldn't be putting my family on the airplanes and i wouldn't be flying them and i do and whenever i wrote my book i looked up the stats because i wanted to be encouraging i don't want people to feel like oh my goodness this was so horrendous you know we just can't fly air travel. And I looked at the statistics in the U.S. That was the first casualty in nine years. Wow. Whereas pedestrians, there's 25 deaths a year uh, being a pedestrian. So air travel is safer than walking. That's a great stat. I like that. <laughs> um, speaking of encouraging, you know, you mentioned Marshall and he's got his license what would you say if, 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 if your kids or one of your children ended up being a pilot? Oh, I, Marshall has planned on it since he was two. Right. He's 20 now, and he's got his glider rating as well as his pilot license, and he's in the Air Force Academy, and it's fabulous. I, okay. I so highly re- recommend it. I've been flying 35 years, and I still love to just start up the engines. It's new every time you get airborne. There's never the same day. It's a great living. I always enjoyed riding the fastest thing we had on the ranch. And so, you know, if if you have that little element of a need for speed, uh, piloting is definitely a good way to get it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, Right, before I let you go, tell me, Joe, tell me about Angel Flight, because this... this this is what you've dedicated your life to right oh. now, your career to now, right? Yes, yes. It's a group of people that have gotten together all over the U.S., and it may be beyond our borders. I don't know. But pilots volunteer their time, their aircraft, their fuel, and take people to their doctor appointments, uh, medical treatments, or home. And yeah. Since COVID's happened and the airlines have, have uh, truncated their schedules quite a bit, my husband and I just did one where we took blood samples to be tested in Houston because nothing can be used until it's tested, but they don't have testing centers everywhere. So many pilots, especially if you're in general aviation and you've either built your own aircraft or you have your own aircraft and you're an engineer, a teacher, someone else during the week, and you want to get out and fly to keep up your proficiency, Well, this way, you can do that, but do it in a direction where you're picking somebody up or taking somebody home. Most of the people are folks that their immune system is just low enough. They really shouldn't be in public. I always feel like I walk away with more than what I gave. I think we're built to help each other. Tammy Jo, it's been such a pleasure to hear your story today, and I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you. 
<laughs> oh, thank you, Annie. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Tammy Joe. What a wonderful, inspiring woman and just really good example of how much you can affect change if you really want to. I like what she said about not taking things personally. I can imagine that's very hard to actually practice in real life when someone is looking at you and saying, you can't do this. But it's about seeing that it's not about you personally. It's about what their perceptions of you are, i.e. a woman, i.e. all of their entrenched sexism and misogyny over the years. So the fact that she was able to kind of just keep persisting and ignore these people saying no constantly, it's real credit to her. I'm so in awe of that. If you want to read more about Tammy Joe and read that book, which is gorgeously written, it's called Nerves of Steel, How I Followed My Dreams, Earned My Wings and Faced My Greatest Challenge. You can find a link in the show notes right now. Right, if you haven't listened yet, do check out the other episodes of Changes. Beth Ditto, Ramesh Ranganathan, Susan, the lottery winner. So many to catch up on from this series alone. Last week, I spoke to former far-right extremist Nigel Bromage. Such an important conversation. Well worth your time. An episode all about ideological change. Next week on the podcast, I interview Alison Lapper. Alison Lapper is a celebrated artist and notable for her disability. She was born with no arms and shortened legs. She calls it limb deficiency. The clinical term is phocomelia. She had a son, Paris, uh, who she gave birth to and brought up against all odds and against all recommendations. He sadly died at the age of 19 in the summer of 2019. And we're going to be speaking all about that all about how she carries on with life after that tragedy in her life and yeah just her creative inspirations and her huge changes in life she was brought up in care and she's just remarkably strong and brave and I think you'll be really inspired by this conversation so looking forward to bringing you Alison Lapper next week on the podcast this episode was produced by Louise Mason for Rethink Audio and I'll see you next week 